This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. Good day, greetings, hello. It is Art at the End of the World. Remix, the podcast that features artists, entertainers, and cultural leaders speaking about what it is to make art here at the end. My name is Mark Wigmore. Welcome to another edition of Remix. And the basic idea here is that we take episodes from our first season of the podcast and we rework, reuse, and remix. For the purposes of our debut season here on the Zoomer Podcast Network and the new Classical FM, thank you so much for joining us. If you are tuning in for the very first time, I want to say welcome. Uh, I am the host of the Oasis, by the way, on the new Classical FM. You can hear me every day, uh, 3 to 7 Eastern. And I'm so thrilled to have the opportunity to put this podcast together again. Uh, I did it very much uh, DIY style for the first season, and we've got the full support of the Zoomer Podcast Network and Classical FM here. And we talk to people who are changing culture through the arts, talk to them about what they do and what they put out into the world and what they make and what they think. And today is uh, no different. But before we get to this week's remix, this episode is sponsored by Crow's Theatre, one of the country's most acclaimed arts organizations and based in Toronto's vibrant East End community. Crow's Theatre creates unforgettable theatre that examines and illuminates the pivotal narratives of our time. Crowstheatre.com for info and tickets. And don't forget Julius Caesar on stage just through this weekend, February 2nd. And if you didn't catch Monday's episode, episode two of this new Art at the End of the World season, Chris Abraham, the Artistic Director, General Director of Crows, uh, was my guest. And I implore you to have a listen. Very inspiring conversation. We're also sponsored by Red Eye Media, a leading arts and entertainment communications company working with award-winning clients, including Crows Theatre, the Musical Stage Company, SummerWorks Performance Festival, and many others. An innovator in arts communications and media relations for over 15 years, Red Eye Media works with leading film, television, and performing arts organizations to build their audience and their impact through engaged, passionate, and strategic communications. For more information on the power of Red Eye, visit redeyemedia.ca. All right. Today, one of my absolute favorite people to talk to because he has such a great head for film, as he should. Toronto International Film Festival artistic director and co-head Cameron Bailey. And he has been a consistent and steady force with the film festival, of course, for many, many years. Uh, The artistic director, for the last decade or so, and now co-head of the festival for the last several years. And to put it in context, this is one of the most important film festivals on the planet. It's up there with Sundance and Cannes and Berlin and Hong Kong and Venice. Uh, so we're very lucky to have it here in the city. And I think it would be fair to say that TIFF sets the table for the award season conversation, which, of course, we've been having for the last month or two. So when we look at the Golden Globes or the Oscars or the Actras or all the different film circle awards, TIFF helps to make that all happen. It's a big deal, and it's been going on for a long time. And it's sort of a different reputation than what you might uh, get at the Cannes Film Festival, which is very much focused on world cinema and then a lot of indie film at Sundance. That's what it's all about there. TIFF is about film lovers. It's very much audience first And like I say, it gives us a glimpse at what everyone will be talking about in the new year for our award season. And that happened again in 2019-2020 with films like Joker and Marriage Story and Parasite. Everybody went to see those films at TIFF. And I think it's fair to say we're at an interesting moment. We've got these big blockbuster Men in Tights movies, which are really uh, paying the bills for theater chains. But then you've got companies like Netflix making serious dramas for adults, the ones that are uh, the talk of the town come award season, and they don't get the same sort of push. They're being produced by, like I say, an Amazon or a Netflix, 
And there's all this friction, and one of the big conversations that happens every year in the last two or three years is, should Netflix even be part of the best picture conversation at the Oscars? And it seems like we've, we've reached some sort of a tipping point in 2019-2020. And all this begs the question, what's the value of the big screen in a world saturated with small screens? So there's really a lot to uh, get here to with Cameron. Uh, the first part of this conversation is from early 2019, and it's great. We really talk about his whole career. And in part two, we'll share Cameron's top picks for best films ever made and our recent interview from back in November, talking more about uh, this year's film festival, this year's films, and in particular, Martin Scorsese. So here it is from the Tiff Bell Lightbox podcast studio, but really using my own uh, Mickey Mouse equipment. Uh, here's my conversation with the Toronto International Film Festival artistic director and co-head Cameron Bailey on Art at the End of the World Remix. So uh, I'll, I'll start with a little story, which was uh, I was um, speaking to Pierce Handling, who, you know, you're kind of <laughs> in his world. Right Absolutely. Now. Yes. <laughs> yeah. at, the, at like the Toronto Arts Council dinner. Do you remember, oh, yeah. You've been to mm-hmm. those things? Uh-huh. I yeah. figure you have. Mm-hmm. I see you at a lot of things. Oh, really? Yeah. You know, like <laughs> okay. if you open like a Toronto uh, uh, Life uh-huh. You're there a lot. Well, I mean, I'm a homebody, but you know, I is that true? Every now and then, I mean, these days I have a family, so you, you know. Yeah, and uh, but you're always wearing something fancy, <laughs> and you seem to have a really good collection of glasses. I will say that as well. Thank you. Yeah. Thanks very much. So, do you work on that? Not so much. I mean, you know, we're fortunate. We have a, um, a partnership with Hugo Boss, so I, nice. I am grateful to them for all of that. The Gear, okay, um, and then I found this great place on on uh, College Street where I get my glasses. So, oh, yeah, very good. Mm-hmm. Not going to let the cat out of the bag, or not right now. All right, fair enough. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm there, and I'm talking <clears throat> with him at the arts dinner, and I I mentioned to him that I really loved the Florida project, mm. and I said, oh, and I really liked La La Land, and he said, oh, you like those, did you? <laughs> I'm like, uh, uh, yeah, I, uh, I think. You know, sometimes we, w- there's all different kinds of movie lovers out mm-hmm. there. And uh, I have to imagine you guys live in a certain jet stream of, of moviedom uh, where you're just so into the culture and into the mm-hmm. scene that it, it starts to, I don't know. I, I'm wondering how what goes through your mind uh, in those I mean, situations. look, in, you know, movies are a great art form because nearly everyone has access to them, whether you go to a cinema or you're watching them at home. Uh, but if you're working in film like peers did for decades and like I do, um, you see more than the average person. I mean, we call ourselves programmers, and we call everyone who watches movies purely for pleasure civilians, in a way, you know, right. because it, it becomes a little bit different when you're watching hundreds of movies per year professionally. Film critics have the same kind of uh, thing, and a lot of people who make movies do, although I think critics and programmers probably watch more movies than just about anybody even who works in film right. and that changes how you look at films they, those two groups of people live sort of live in the same world i would imagine very similar there is a, i think because i've been a critic and i've been a programmer know, and yeah. there's a, a, a really distinct difference and i think uh in both cases you're training the tools that assess how films work and and you're looking you're analyzing what's creating the meaning of this film what are the the formal elements what are, what are what, you know what are the the story elements that create the meaning but programmers are doing that with an audience in mind as well much more than critics do or have to right. uh, and for a programmer the the final success of your work is always how the film plays with an audience right. you know right. and sometimes it's a matter of finding the right audience for a film because not every film is for every audience so that's a little different than criticism because you as a critic uh, you're not I mean you might be thinking about the audience part of the time you shouldn't have but, to care though right yeah. yeah, yeah, which is so, nice which is <laughs> sometimes. But what, I mean, I've been a programmer longer than I've been a critic because I do care. Right. 
And I, I find it so gratifying to present a film that I've loved to an audience and have that same reaction just emerge from them, from hundreds of people um, in the dark. It's amazing. When I first started attending critic screenings years and years ago, I, you know, I was a little green in the business and I was still finding my way and figuring out how I was going to find my voice in the media landscape. And I started noticing that I'd be watching a film, all of a sudden I'd hear a bunch of laughter. Mm. And I, I wouldn't necessarily know exactly what all these critics were laughing about, mm-hmm. but it started to dawn on me that they were, you know, taking a look at craft or mm-hmm. maybe some of the the typical uh, ideas or, or exercises that maybe a filmmaker is known for, and they would just think that certain things were funny that I don't think a normal audience would, would yeah, laugh at. Probably not. I mean, yeah. let's hope they weren't just laughing in derision. Might right. have been. Who knows? Sure. But, what often happens too when you're watching hundreds and hundreds of movies every year like critics do like programmers do is that you have a different frame of reference than the average moviegoer because any anyone working professionally in film watching say a superhero movie today has seen not just you know a few superhero they've seen all of the superhero movies right. you know and that's true of just about every genre so sometimes when you hear laughter from critics or from programmers it's laughter of recognition like oh that person's ripping off or riffing on Lars von Trier or you know Sally Potter who whoever it might be. And, uh, you know, your average moviegoer might not necessarily have that same frame of reference. I'll just give you a quick uh, tiff moment in my life that I will never forget, and that was waking up around 6 in the morning after, you know, some party at, uh, during the big tiff week and and getting up and having to see a, an 8.30 a.m. screening of Lars von Trier's Antichrist. And uh, that <laughs> will, a good way to start the that day. Will, <laughs> that will stick with me uh, forever. Mm-hmm. I just remember everybody looking a little bleary-eyed and just getting ready and strapping in yeah. for uh, what was going well, to happen. Even that, even that you were watching a movie at that hour of the day, right? right. Most people don't do that, right? right. You, if you're working in film, that becomes normal, right? You get up, sometimes you have coffee or whatever it is you need, and you start your day watching a movie. And for most people, that's a way to unwind at the end of the day. And it's just a different way of, of reacting to films. You must have a, a memory like that where you remember just seeing a, a, a strange film at an ungodly hour or an odd yeah. situation in a theater. That must happen to you all the time. I mean, Odd situations, absolutely. Sure. Uh, you know, I got used to watching movies at any hour of the day a long time ago because I've been doing this for quite a, a long time. But I've been lucky enough to travel a lot in this job, and I have I have been taken down back alleys and up you know flights of stairs to watch movies and people's right. editing suites in Calcutta or a ridiculous you know purpose built gigantic state of the art cinema in Johannesburg that would belong to somebody's it was in a private home but it was like going to a state of the art multiplex cinema that was unusual you know i've heard rats uh, scuttling underneath the seats in um in Trivandrum in South India as i was watching a movie all kinds of things happen when you're out there looking for films, but that's part of the adventure. It is part of the adventure, and uh, I, I mean, I'm as, as wild as that is, I mean, it sounds exotic and amazing, <laughs> and what a life in, mm. in so many ways. Uh, congratulations on this appointment that you are enjoying and are obviously full throttle on right now, and mm-hmm. as we progress to uh, the 2019 festival, uh, are, what are you looking forward to mm. right now? You know, I've just gotten back from the Berlin Film Festival, and a lot of our programming team was there, and we had a great meeting and a dinner there, and, and talked a lot about what was coming up for this year. There's some films we've seen already uh, at Sundance, at Berlin, Rotterdam. Uh, we have teams sort of fanning out at the early in the year film festivals, but we also are tracking everything that's coming down the line. So you know, we know some of the the filmmakers who are who will be finishing new films for us this year, and, and that's exciting. And we won't know till we see them uh, what they're like and whether they'll be in our festival, but just getting a, a taste of what's to come is exciting. Uh, it's also a year where we'll have some new voices in the programming team, and we'll be announcing uh, some of that shortly as well. So that's exciting as well, just to bring some fresh blood into the programming team to make sure we've got a real range and diversity of voices and perspectives. We actually like to argue about films. Sure. So you want people at the table who've got strong opinions and different opinions from each other, and, yeah. and, and uh, that's a part of the process as well. So I'm I'm excited about that. It's interesting as we go forward and, you know, I think we're seeing uh, the arts and culture community being leaned on heavily to sort out 
some of the problems of the world right now. And it's been fascinating to see some of the responses from big organizations, uh, whether it be even a Soul Pepper or what's happening here at TIFF, as you point out, new programmers, new voices. There's an intention that seems to be happening right now, but then there's also, uh, you know, the rubber needs to hit the road too and you've got a show to put on so it must be sort of a fascinating moment for you it's it's fascinating it is uh gratifying i think to see people care so much about movies and what movies show us what they tell us about the world we live in and about each other that they're asking for change you know they're demanding that we hear more of what women have to say about what the world looks like from their perspective underrepresented voices, whether it's people of color, uh, LGBTQ filmmakers, um, filmmakers with disabilities, you know, so many different ranges of, of just perception and understanding the world around us that we haven't seen, you know, and the great movies from the classic era of Hollywood, for instance, that, that many of us know and love, they're beautiful and they're inspiring and they show us, I think, one slice of reality, one slice of life, one slice of imagination and fantasy. Right. And there's so much more, right? There's so many other colors that I think we can also see and we're beginning to see more of that, which is I think is great. And it's it's significant because it's clear how how important movies are to people. Movies represent the world around us in such a strong way. I mean, you know, every art form has its own strengths, but movies have this real mimetic strength where they appear, if you fall into them, to show you like almost through a window what life is like. You know, you watch movies about New York City and you think, I know what it's like to be in New York City. Of course uh-huh. you don't. Everything's constructed. Right. And when New York when you go to New York it's not quite what you've seen in the movies no. always. But movies give us that impression that they're showing us life as it is. And so as a result, people ask a lot more of movies compared to some other art forms and I think that's only a good thing so long as we're listening and we pay attention to that and when we ask for movies to represent the full range of life let's see more of that and um, so this is an interesting time to be um, in the movie business and I want to pick up on something that you just talked about and and some of the classic films that we know and love and I've been having this conversation about music as well and the music business that as this moment we're having where there's all sorts of cultural corrections happening Mm -hmm everywhere you look, uh, that there does seem to be this sudden distance between some of those, uh, you know, classic films and what we considered even, you know, a classic classic rock or what mm-hmm. have you. Mm-hmm. It's starting to feel like, uh, you know, the bridge between now and then mm-hmm. is, is fracturing a little bit. Are you feeling that? Well, somebody mentioned this phrase to me, which I, I see online a lot, the sort of a problematic fave, right. you know, or problematic favorite, which right. is something that it's still your favorite, but you have to acknowledge it's problematic. You watch classic Hollywood movies from the 30s and 40s, you'll see a lot of men slap a lot of women around. Right. That just that just happens in movies a lot. And those are the heroes, the men who are doing that. Those right. are the bad guys. Right. Right? So we don't see that so much in movies anymore. And certainly in life, it is, it's illegal, you know. So obviously there are, are her prohibitions against it, but it's just a part of movies of a certain era. Doesn't mean you throw the movies out altogether, but you, you watch them differently. You, you think and talk about them differently. We do throw out careers, though. Mm-hmm. You know, and that's been a fascinating thing. It was just uh, Chris Locke, a comedian, was on this program uh, a couple of weeks ago, and he was talking about his Woody Allen collection, for mm-hmm. example, and how difficult that is for him right now, who was such an influence on his mm-hmm. on his comedy career. But he's looking at those DVDs right now saying, mm-hmm. I'm not sure what I know what to, to do with those. Yeah. And that's a real struggle that I think a lot of us have to go through. Um, you know, it's it's um, but it's not. I think it's a good thing to go right. through that struggle. I think it's and 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 let's not pretend that the answers on the other side will ever be simple, you know. And and you know, great artists that we revere through the history of art um, can be people who've done terrible things, and that's just something that I think is a, a kind of a, a grown-up response to art generally. Uh, you have to acknowledge that. You got to deal with it. You got to find your own solutions. For some people, it will be I'm never going to watch that stuff again. Right. For others, it will be I'll watch it differently. For some people, it will be, I still love the work. I won't watch it differently, but I'll think about the person differently. Everybody's got their own reaction to it. I think that's all fine. Um, but let's not 
shy away from the process of going through that. It's a struggle I think we got to go through. What's fascinating to me, because you look at something like uh, Twitter, for example, mm-hmm. and pre-Twitter, where maybe this was conversation was mm-hmm. happening with other artists, and post, um, there is a, a sort of a grand shaming, one way or the other, mm-hmm. that people can fall victim to uh to, you know the, the conversation isn't as nuanced because it's just this outrage that's mm. happening on a- i mean social media is not known for its nuance shall we say in terms <laughs> no. of debate generally um and i look i think that's always um going to be something you have to have to be cautious about I, you know i'm always most interested in debates uh, and conversations that have a bit more depth to them, a bit more nuance. And maybe the answer at the end of it is shame still. Right. <laughs> but, you, know, you can still you can go through nuance to get to that, or maybe it's something else. Maybe it's something um, that, that has a little bit more of um, the subtleties of right. the argument in it. But it's, uh, I think these conversations are, are productive. I'm glad to see voices that probably wouldn't, been, wouldn't have been at the table in the past talking about some of this work now at the table, sometimes leading those debates. You see what's happened with the Oscars, for instance, in terms of calls for more diversity. That campaign was started by a woman named April Rain, a black woman who probably would not have been listened to in debates about the Oscars, you know, 20 or 30 years ago. So there, there are, there's an upside to it, so long as it doesn't become a simplistic, you know, bad and good sort of debate. I think there's there's some some real value to it. Speaking of the Oscar debate, since uh, we're, we're, you brought it up, this idea of shuffling some of these technical categories under the rug. What do you think? Figure, I I think, bad move, maybe. That's my opinion. Yeah, look, I, I, I am not equipped to give the Academy advice on how to run their show or the network. That's, Hot that's take right it. here. It's coming. <laughs> you feel like there's a butt coming. Right? Yeah, right, right. I mean, look, uh, like Guillermo del Toro and Alfonso Cuaron and so many other filmmakers have pointed out, you can't have cinema without cinematography and editing, Come for on. instance, at the, at, the, at the very least. Look, it's a TV show, uh, so I understand the need for ratings and for pacing and all those kinds of things. But at the same time, cinema is about some very fundamental crafts, which I, I hope um, will be respected. So uh, uh, let's go back just a little bit. Uh, I know this is material you've probably covered uh, often in interviews, but uh, I'm curious, you know, this Barbados uh, upbringing, you're with your grandparents, and then eventually Thornhill is where you That's land. That's right. First North York and then Thornhill. Okay, right. I, where does the movie Nerdum, Nerdum <laughs> uh, uh, filter into your life? You know, I, I, I mean, thank you for gracing <laughs> me with the title of movie nerd, by the way. <laughs> Do you feel, are, is that fair? I, I don't know. I mean, I, as a child, I would not have said so at all. Right. I was a bookworm. I'll take that title. Okay. Uh, I spent a lot of my time, like after school in the school library, and on the weekends, I would actually ride my bike down to the the uh, Thornhill Community Center, where there was a great public library, uh, and I spent a lot of time there. Um, in fact, my mother had to encourage me to do other things because I just loved reading so much. I watched movies on TV. I didn't go out to the cinema that much. The one moment I remember as a uh, a young person was discovering Steven Spielberg's Close Encounters of the Third Kind. And I watched that in cinema. Over the, there were re-releases and things. I watched it in cinema five times uh, before I was an adult. And so that was unusual because, you know, I, I, I wasn't that excited about any, any other film. And then when I was in high school, I discovered the repertory cinemas in Toronto. And I went, uh, you know, I would go from Thornhill all the way down to the Fox at the Beaches neighborhood to see Commitment. what they had playing there. Because, yeah, there, there were things that you wouldn't find. This is in the pre you know, Netflix and streaming era, of course, and even really before DVDs. And right. um, it wasn't as easy to find. Days of posters on telephone poles and That's right. zines. That's and, right. Right. All of that. And you would you would go out, you'd seek these movies out at rep cinemas. Sort of the good old days. I mean, I think we're still doing some of that <laughs> yeah, here yeah, yeah, at yeah. the Lightbox every day. You know, we've got a great Cinematheque where we're, we're doing archival screenings all the time. We're, we're bringing some of those films back to the big screen, which is really the way that they were meant to be seen. We're showing them on 35 millimeter as well and yeah. occasionally on 70 millimeters so that kind of stuff is exciting to me to be a part of now because I know that there are high school kids like I was back in the day who even though you can now get this stuff on your phone <laughs> they want 
to see movies the way they were meant to be seen. I also like, I mean, most recently I checked out Roma here, and I, mm. I want to talk about that in a moment, but uh, the 4K and yeah. the Atmos, uh, the surround sound. It's remarkable. It's yeah, pretty and, unbelievable. Yeah, and, and you know, Alfonso Cuaron is a great artist and a great technician, and, and like he did with 3D and Gravity, he's used, I think, all of the, the potential of the Atmos sound, especially the potential of 4K digital imagery and black and white, uh, to really uh, deep and enhance his story. And one thing that I, I, I heard him say, we did a Q&A with him uh, with one of the Roma screenings, and he said he didn't use black and white to make it look like an old movie. He wanted to make it 21st century black and white, and it looks very different. He's using grayscales, he's using detail in a very different way that doesn't look like a movie from the 30s or I think 40s. that was my impression yeah. walking out of it, too, yeah. that it was high-tech as much as yeah. it may it's have very been perceived high otherwise. Yeah. otherwise. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So you were a story junkie, perhaps mm-hmm. more than a, a film perhaps, junkie as yes. a kid. You mm-hmm. know, really into books. And when do you feel the confidence to offer criticism uh, on the subject of mm-hmm. film? What what happens there? You know, I think what came first were just opinions, right? <laughs> and then they were, you know, about everything, right? And then they began to focus uh, on film. Right. <laughs> yes, exactly. Because you know, when you're a teenager, you know exactly what's right and wrong with everything. <laughs> of course. <laughs> I was a co-editor of my high school newspaper, Thornhill Secondary School, the, the um, Tribune, and um, and I wrote opinion columns there. And then when I went to Western University, I began working for the student newspaper, the Gazette, a Western, and wrote a lot. First, I wrote about music. I, I covered concerts and, and reviewed albums, and then theater. I'd go down to the road to Stratford and review. I would review Stratford <laughs> productions as a like nineteen-year-old, which is <laughs> hilarious to me now <laughs> and um the gumption we you have, know right? exactly. it's really it amazing yeah. yeah and uh, not necessarily wrong well uh, but probably not as informed as you'd want to be no you know? but you know it's a perspective and anyway i was an english major and i thought yeah. i knew shakespeare enough to review stratford it's, it's just humiliating to think about it now <laughs> but i did discover film i took uh, some film courses at western and began writing about movies for the, the student newspaper there and that's really where it all started was was there somebody or, or uh, something that happened that made you feel yes. propelled? To go keep, yeah, and keep this going? is really where I share a deep bond with Pierce Handling. For me and for him, it was Jean-Luc Godard. Mm-hmm. And it was particularly the films he made between Breathless and Weekend in the 1960s, uh, you know, so the, the early Godard, yeah. that they were so groundbreaking, um, so shocking in many ways and so completely cinematic in the way that they, they just broke with tradition on so many levels mm-hmm. and I saw those films uh, in university and uh, I, I was sh- you know suddenly and shockingly made aware of what film could do that other art forms uh, couldn't and you go through uh, working with CBC and now magazine and we start to see you in different places and then also feel that uh, you're ready to take on screen screenplays and screen and writing yeah take on is is a, is a reach yeah. <laughs> I mean I was I was you know dabbling I would say I thought that I had something to contribute I adapted with Clement Virgo um, a book called The Planet of Junior Brown, uh, which he directed, and then I wrote uh, some other work in development as a screenwriter, and I really enjoyed it. I made a short film as well, and that process, looking back on it now, for me, was most useful in understanding what artists go through, right. and just it's like the, Ebert wanting to visit a set or what? Yeah, you, right? just get out there and get your you know hands dirty. And, as a critic, as yeah. a programmer, you're working off other artists' creations all the time, right? You're responding to that, and you have your own creative act uh, to do in conversation with it, but that work exists already. And when you're making something from scratch, it is that tyranny of the blank page, which is terrifying. But you got to go through it to understand what filmmakers and other artists go through. And I I was humbled by that blank page, and I, I have a lot of uh, empathy for filmmakers as a result. So at some point, uh, the Toronto International Film Festival, it's happening throughout your career as a, a critic and a writer and all the different things that you were doing. And, and what's the decision to... Uh to walk into this, well, not this building at the time, but uh, yeah. to get involved. 
Um, I was approached very early in my professional life by Piers mm. Handling, um, who wanted me to come on board as a programmer for the Canadian film selection. We had a Canadian section called Perspective Canada back in the day. Yeah. And um, I said no the first time he asked me uh, because I didn't think I was qualified. I was really, I was still finishing, or try, I, thought, I thought I was finishing a graduate degree, which I eventually abandoned. Th- sorry, York University. <laughs> <laughs> sorry, Mom. Uh, and uh, Was it cocktails over Godard? And he, and he was like, you got to come over here. You know, I was, I was busy working. Right. I was writing as a critic already. I was doing some programming um, for independent cinemas in Toronto. Um, and the graduate work began to fall away. But I didn't think I was ready yet to be a, a TIFF programmer. And, and the Festival of Festivals, as it was called at the time, had already had a great reputation. I thought, I'm, I'm still a little too green for that. Thankfully, he came back the following year, and that year I did say yes, and I joined that programming team. I think it was 26 when I joined it, and um, and like three years later, I was in charge of the Perspective Canada programming team, and uh, and so I, I learned a lot fast, and then eventually got into international programming. Piers and I made our first trip to uh, the big film festival in Africa in, in uh, Ouagadougou uh, called Fespaco together, and that just really opened my eyes as well, and I began to really see the whole world as as full of possibility when it came to cinema. And that must give you a certain confidence. I mean, at the end of the day, this is one of the biggest film festivals in the world. But when you're excited about witnessing all that cinema around the planet, I mean, that must spur on some confidence to just keep doing what you're doing. We're very fortunate in Toronto because we have, I think, one of, not one of, I think we have the best film audience in the world. It is most informed, most uh, open and enthusiastic and generous. And we get to go around the world and bring movies back home for that audience. It's an enormous privilege for all of us who do that. And it's something that has grown up over time. Toronto wasn't always that kind of city. No. It was a, a much more sort of closed city, I think, in terms of how it thought of itself in the world. Now Toronto film audiences think of themselves as a big part of global cinema. And TIFF has been partly responsible for that, but so many other festivals in town have been a part of that as well. And the audience has, itself has helped kind of elevate us as they've become bigger and richer and bolder and throw a stone and there's a film yeah. festival in this town am i yeah. right every day of the year there's oh a film gosh. festival going on in this town isn't it something i have some wonderful memories uh from being a part of tiff over the years i remember sitting beside roger ebert and thinking that was pretty great leonard malton mm-hmm. <laughs> um the interviews the brad pitts uh denzel sophia loren way back remember that uh, mm-hmm. ricky gervais paul thomas anderson even mm-hmm. we talked about woody allen i remember mm-hmm. him being here ever get starstruck in this business i mean what what happens i mean it's pretty rare now i will say and uh, not because i'm jaded or or i hang out with stars i don't (laughs) but because i'm aware of the work they're doing when they're here Right. right they're professionals um highly trained they're here to do a job uh we're here to help them do that job and I'm impressed, incredibly impressed by uh, maybe that's some of the maybe that's the that the way to town. to frame it. Yeah, yeah, that moment where you're sort of go, okay, this this person clearly has a a worldview and a, a position in this art form that I'm learning yeah. about as I'm talking to him or her, and and you know that I must mean, be great, especially when you have a chance to talk to someone about their films. You get a chance to spend some time with them, and then you go back and watch their films. Agnes Varda is one who I I mean I have to say I'm in love with Agnes Varda and her films. Um, I've had the chance to spend some time with her both in Toronto and at her home in Paris. And she's remarkable. She's a true artist. She thinks with such a visionary creativity about just how she is in the world. You know, she has this persona now because she's older uh, as a kind of a cute old lady. She is not a cute old lady. <laughs> you know, she's got a very sharp mind, very strong opinions. Um, a very she's Her feet are firmly planted in the real world, but she believes in living out of curiosity and generosity as opposed to kind of getting smaller and meaner as she gets older, which is something I think we all have to be on guard against. She's a real inspiration. If I could live my life like anybody, it would be like Agnes Varda. I brought up Roma earlier, and I think it's an excellent example of the whirlwind of change that is happening uh, in Hollywood, in distribution, in uh, awards 
season and just about everything. It addresses a lot of issues in this business and issues that you're going to have to face as co-head of this festival. Um, it's in black and white. It's a foreign language film. It's distributed by Netflix. Some people saw it here at Tiffel Lightbox like me. Um, there's just a lot happening with that film that speaks to maybe some of the change that uh, we're seeing generally. So as you look at, at uh, the arc of what that film has done and to the future and Netflix and all the rest of it, uh, what's on your mind? Rome is a great example of how art can make a difference. Right. If a film is made at a high enough level of craft and technique, if there's a strong enough vision behind it, if there's real humanity behind it, as there is in Roma, then it can suddenly just like explode in all directions and affect people in, on so many different levels. You look at Yelitsa Aparicio um, as an indigenous woman who had not acted before as a school teacher, right. uh, suddenly on the cover of magazines in Mexico, which had never in their histories had indigenous women on their covers. Uh, suddenly, suddenly she has a voice that's so much stronger than anything else would have given her besides this film. Right. You know, People are talking about class and domestic labor uh, not just in Mexico, but anywhere this film is being seen mm -hmm. in a w in ways that sometimes they don't have the language to do, but sh watching the film together gives them that opportunity. Um, people are, are are suddenly open to the to the, the potential of black and white again. Um, it's not a, a dead um, uh, aesthetic, you know. It's something that, that can be brought to life again by a great artist like Alfonso Cuaron. Atmos is not just for big, you know, uh, uh, superhero spectacle Men movies. in tight movies. No. No, Women in tight Because people use it sometimes to bombard the audience instead right. of to to really uh, immerse the audience in a in a soundscape that is more intimate. Right. And Roma did all of that as well. And then also you had a film that was so powerful, so beautifully made, made at such a high level that although it is made for and distributed on a streaming platform that many of us have on our our mobile devices in our homes, people want to see it in the cinema. It has that power too. So yeah. If the work's good enough, it can do a lot. What, what's your take on going forward? Because we've got, on one hand, we know that you know cinema companies, they know what their bread and butter is, and it is the those big superhero films and Star Wars and what have you. Um, and yet there's a, a pushback against mm -hmm. films you know, produced by Netflix and so on. There may, might be some argument to be made that there are less of the type of films that maybe T TIFF has championed over the years. I don't know that that's actually true, but sometimes... I don't think so. Yeah, I don't really think so either, but there might be that perception out there um, that, you know, studios are kind of putting all their eggs in one basket. Do you take it day by day, or is this something you, you seriously have to think about in the next couple of years as platforms change and, and, and what have you? I'm optimistic. Yeah. I'm very optimistic for the future of cinema. Uh, there are remarkable artists out there. I mean, we haven't talked about Deborah Granick, who made, I think, one of the best films of last year in Leave No Trace, or Lynn Ramsey, or, you know, Ava DuVernay. There's, there's just so many amazing filmmakers out there. They will find the platforms they need to, right? You might find their films turn up on streaming service or through conventional theatrical exhibition or in other ways. You might discover them at festivals. It doesn't matter. Mm -hmm. So long as they have the opportunity to make great movies, tell stories that are meaningful to them, and through those films, audiences can connect with each other and can connect with a work of art that kind of just elevates them and illuminates life. So you have That's gonna happen. concern over that the, the cinema experience continues, but you're still like, let's just get these... Let's just get these made one way or the yeah. other. Yeah, yeah, we built this light box for people to enjoy the art of cinema at the highest level. Right. We're lucky. We got one of the best cinemas in the world, and it's open for business and always will be for those great artists. So right. that will never end. People say there there aren't leading or leading men or women the, the way there used to be. That mm. that's changing um just not bankable in the same way that maybe we experienced 10 or 20 years ago we, you're big part of tiff especially the festival is that star system you know there's a lot of glitz and glamour that happens that's something that as as media fractures that you're you're noticing that that's that's changing that you can't put 
all your confidence in, in, in yeah. any given actor anymore. I mean, I think you have to look back at how star systems were created and right. maintained. You know, it was a very industrial system in Hollywood in the 30s and 40s and 50s. Uh, it still exists to a degree in Bollywood right now and other parts of the world where they have very entrenched star systems. Um, that's one thing. It's a kind of an industrial process. But I think there's sure. also just charisma and there's people are never going to run out of charisma right so you've got you'll always have actors coming up who've got that screen presence who have that charisma and they're the vehicles that channel that will change and vary and maybe they will be acting against green screen half the time and every now and then they'll get the chance to do something that's more of a a human story Um, but i think we will always have great actors who have charisma who we call stars even as as the structural systems change. Because we're all trying to be stars. I'm not. I know. <laughs> but you know what I mean. I mean, there there is a world out there, uh, and I speak generally, mm-hmm. about, you know, whether it be Instagram or what have you, that pe- there's, oh, a, there demo- that. there's yes. a democratization that's yes. happening of people wanting their own moment of fame, or sure. at least to fool themselves into thinking that. And I wonder if that's helped the watering down process of what we're seeing in... I wonder, because I think the kind of quote-unquote stardom that people seek in social media is fairly thin, and it it doesn't have that kind of that deep sense of charisma that I'm thinking of when I think of what uh, movie stars of the past and, and present have, where no matter what they're doing and what role on screen you watch them, because they're they're just compelling right you know and um that's different than having a good uh, a good angle on instagram I, <laughs> let's hope <laughs> so uh, you know we've seen a lot happen in in hollywood since the days of oscar so white i was uh, karen robinson was my guest uh, last week she says hello by the way yes she's yeah. an amazing actor yeah, isn't herself. she great but we were talking about this is is there's a, seemingly the the broadcast is that there's some sort of fundamental change happening in Hollywood uh, by certainly by, by award season standards. There's work that's being done to say, hey, we really are taking this seriously. Is that fundamental change real, or is that the the facade so far? Or what's your take on it? Because you're you're the one working with these studios. You see, you're on the ground floor of a lot of this. I think what is most real is the demands of the audience. Audiences want to see themselves up on screen in all of their diversity. And that that call is just going to grow in strength. What stands in the way of that are all of the different structures that are already in place. So the money that it takes to make movies, the existing systems of development and production and distribution and exhibition and promotion that are pretty fixed are going to be a lot slower to change. But the audience wants to see ourselves up on screen. And it, it you know, we all have that desire. Uh, and that, I think, is going to keep driving things, even as those structures are a little bit um, slow to change. Cameron Bailey, what a treat, and I know you're a busy man, and thank you for taking a little time to uh, be a part of this podcast. My pleasure. Thank you. You are listening to Art at the End of the World, Remix, with TIFF co-head Cameron Bailey. And coming up, Cameron's top three films, uh, his personal picks, we'll get to those, and a new conversation reflecting on the 2019 edition of TIFF, that happened, of course, this past September, and the power of Martin Scorsese, a filmmaker many believe to be the greatest living director. You're listening to the Zoomer Podcast Network. Mark Wigmore with you. Back to my conversation here on Art at the End of the World Remix with Toronto International Film Festival co-head Cameron Bailey. So here... Cameron is going to list the three films that have had the greatest impact on him over the years. A profound effect. Films that have allowed him to ponder the possibilities of the genre. And it's just a wonderful list. Get a pen out. And I love that film has such a lasting effect on you. A great film. It can change your perspective or your attitude about relationships or topics or ideas or people. And I think uh, you're going to get a lot out of this. So here we go. Part two of my conversation with Cameron Bailey. (music) 
we always like to offer a, a list to our listeners, something I talk about a lot. Is how a, a lot about is how a piece of art, in this case film, can change your perception of the world around you, and I think that's one of the most wonderful things any piece of art can do. Um, so I'd, I'd love to hear a couple films uh, that have uh, sort of had that profound effect on you, where you walked out and thought, I, my worldview has changed, something has changed sure. for, for seeing this film. I will give you three. Okay. Um, Chris Marker's Sans Soleil, Sunless, uh, from 1983. Right. Uh, an, an essay film, so very much a personal view of the world and travel uh, through the director's eyes. He roams across the world, Iceland and Japan and the coast of West Africa. The first image he told me about was of three children on a road in Iceland in 1965. He said that for him it was the image of happiness and also that he had tried several times to link it to other images, but it never worked. He wrote me, one day I'll have to put it all alone at the beginning of a film with a long piece of black leader. If they don't see happiness in the picture, at least they'll see the black. It just feels like a conversation you'd have with somebody, and it really opened my eyes to how film can be anything and how it can be so personal yeah. as well. It can encompass the whole world, but through one person's uh, vision. That was amazing to me. I love that idea that uh, you walk out and you say, not only did that story change my, my life, but just the way it was told was yeah. so special. Yeah. Jabril Diop Mambeti's Tuki Buki. If you haven't seen it, anyone listening, it's one of, I think, the most uh, revelatory, really inspiring films I've ever seen. A uh, filmmaker from Senegal. And it, revolutionary in the way that Godard was and that, in the way that that opened my eyes. But he's, he's an African filmmaker and very much making a film about these two young African rebels um, trying to escape. It's kind of like a, you know, rebels on the run kind of movie in the great American tradition, um, but shot through with a very um, revolutionary African sensibility. This is the time when Africa was going through uh, so many independence movements, mm -hmm. and that's reflected in the film as well. It just has this freedom to it, which I absolutely love. Wait, uh, what year was that one? Do you that remember? was like in the late 60s. I okay. can't remember the exact date. But right. um, yeah, he's passed on, unfortunately. But it's still a really influential film. And Number three. Uh, number three <laughs> is, and I, it's amazing because I could go on forever, sure. but I will stop it at uh, Wong Kar Wai's film, In the Mood for Love. Which uh, wasn't always my favorite Wong Kar Wai movie. I love Chunking Express as well. Uh, but In the Mood for Love on sustained viewing stands up as perhaps the most beautiful piece of cinema I can imagine. I love that idea too. That you have, there's a body of work, and maybe you have a favorite there. But when you really think about the one that yeah. changed your perception or was profound in a way that is bugging you at the back of your sure. brain, you know. And it's it's really a, a, always a, a kind of an index of how you change over time as uh -huh. well. Your response to the movies that you love, and sometimes some of them they fall away in in your your heart, and some some of them you grow to love even more. And in the mood for love is one I will love, I think, for the rest of my life. It's a love story, of course. It's a story of loss and longing and so melancholy and I think the combination of passion and sadness is just irresistible for me anyhow and uh, great performances absolutely beautiful images and great music and I, I could live inside that film we love to feel sad at the movies sometimes. we do we absolutely <laughs> I do. know I do in the dark <laughs> It is Art at the End of the World, and we have one part left in this remix episode with Cameron Bailey, and it's going back to November of 2019 when Cameron joined me in studio at the New Classical FM for a post-TIFF conversation about this year's festival and his programming of the TIFF Cinematheque retrospective on Martin Scorsese. And of course, The Irishman has been getting all kinds of accolades over award season, but uh, not without its critics, to be sure. It is very long. So we're going to get into that and so much more. Part three of Cameron Bailey Remix.
Listen, I got that kid I was talking to you about here. I'm going to put him on the phone and let you talk to him, okay? Hello? Is that Frank? Yes. Hi, Frank. This is Jimmy Hoffa. Yeah, yeah. Glad to meet you. Well, glad to meet you, too. Even if it's over the phone. I heard you paint houses. Yes, yes, sir. I, I do. I do. And I, uh, I also do my own carpentry. I'm glad to hear that. There's a moment from the three-and-a-half-hour Martin Scorsese mafia epic The Irishman, starring Robert De Niro, Joe Pesci, and Al Pacino. The New York filmmaker's influence on modern cinema is immeasurable. His pacing, storytelling, casting, music choices, editing, and subject matter examined over the last 40 years has changed the game. From Taxi Driver and Raging Bull to Goodfellas and Casino. The Aviator, The Last Temptation of Christ, Gangs of New York, and The Wolf of Wall Street. That's just to name a few. His obsessions, his curiosities have been satiated in front of millions, and the mirror he holds up isn't always pretty, but almost always compelling. And just when you think he's finished with the great films from his career, something like The Irishman lands in our laps. It's quite simply an outstanding body of work. I'm standing here. You make the move. You make the move. Your move. You talking to me? You talking to me? You talking to me? Well, I'm the only one here. With me to take us through the Scorsese retrospective is the man who programmed it, Tiff Cohead Cameron Bailey. Welcome. Thank you, Mark. Great to have you here. Uh, before we get to this set of films that you've put together, I'm going to ask uh, a Tiff 2019 in the books, a big one for you and your team. I thought it was an outstanding Tiff year. I just thought it was one of the great years. I loved it. So, I'm glad to hear that. Congratulations! We did Thank yeah. you. Thanks very much. We had a great audience. Um, you know, gr- no, so many people attending, so many people loving the films. That's always the most gratifying. And it was just a good year for movies as well. Now, I don't even have this written down. It just popped into my head. Scotiabank Theater, they're talking that it might be uh, gone next year. Is that is that a problem for you We guys? Well, it, if it goes, it'll be a problem. Yeah. We don't know yet. We're okay. still um, talking with, um, with the proprietors there, and we're going to find out how long we can actually stay in. Very good. So how do you see TIFF's place, uh, what TIFF Bell Lightbox provides? It's a chaotic moment of streaming and screens and content just coming at us in all direction. What What is the service that... Uh TIFF provides, right? I think we're still the best place to see a movie. Actually, not just in Toronto. I'm going to go out on a limb and say in the country. Uh, We built TIFF Bell Lightbox in 2010 and opened it then as a place that was really a temple to movies. If you want to see movies on the big screen with terrific projection, terrific sound, the best conditions. Atmos sound, I believe. Atmos sound in in Cinema 2. And I think the best popcorn in the city as well. Uh, Then we're the place to do it. Of course, you can watch movies so many places now, but don't you want to see your favorite movies on the big screen? It's really the best way. It is absolutely true. You you and I have talked about this before on my podcast, Art at the End of the World, but uh, the relationship between Netflix as a film producer and cinema operators, it continues to be a bit fragile. Uh, already there's this big conversation, articles written about Scorsese's Irishman only being on a few screens in North America. Lightbox has been something of a place for Netflix releases. Can you frame what's happening there and what you see happening going forward? Yeah, I think you're seeing this in Canada and many other countries. The companies that are the traditional exhibitors of movies, the big cinema chains, are really not willing to show movies for shorter than what's called a 90-day window. So 90 days before it's available in home video and in various formats. Um, We don't have that restriction. Uh, We want to show the best movies we can for our audiences. We want to see them uh, come to the Tiff Bell Lightbox and watch them on the big screen. It's shorter than the window than a commercial exhibitor would want, but it's fine for us, and we just want audiences to see it that way, because that really is, we think, the, the best way to see it. And I do uh, implore people to see it on the big screen, because I Thank think you. well worth it. It is right? completely worth it. Uh, so many uh, greats from Scorsese's body of work for this retrospective. What are the films that had to be there? <laughs> Besides every single I one? Know, they, I, there. I know. That, I mean, he really is such a singular filmmaker. There's nobody like him. There never has been a filmmaker like Martin Scorsese uh, because he makes personal films on a vast scale. He, he's all, Nearly all of his movies have been studio movies of one kind or another. Uh, so he's working with big budgets, and The Irishman has a very big budget. I think maybe the largest. Yeah, yeah. $160 million from, from reports I've read. Uh, but they're personal films. They're about his obsessions. They're about loyalty and faith. 
faith. Uh, he grew up as a Catholic. He grew up as a boy who was uh, bedridden with asthma for a long time. And so he has this kind of um, just vulnerability uh, that's in his movies and in the way he sees the world. But he also grew up in a world where he knew gangsters. He knew people who just committed crimes, who might have killed people, and that's also a part of his world. So you see the violence, the danger, the kind of aggressive masculinity in a lot of his movies, but you also see that vulnerability. You see that quest for something bigger. You know, he's always looking for something bigger. There's a, a kind of a, a, a sacrament involved in a Scorsese story. And, and I and no, it's a that's a difficult question. What had to be there? Look, you can start with the big ones, with yeah. the Goodfellas and Raging Bull and Taxi Driver and The Departed and Wolf of Wall Street. Yeah. But also, you could, there are all these great gems that you might not know as well. After Hours, one of my favorite movies. Um, Age of Innocence, the Edith Wharton adaptation that he did, which seems uncharacteristic for Martin Scorsese. That nobody's shooting a gun in that film. Right. Uh, but Daniel Day-Lewis in one of his great early performances with Michelle Pfeiffer and and, um, it's a terrific film as well. Uh, I'm trying to remember. Is the title "Bring Out the Dead"? Is that "Bringing the, Out the Dead"? Bringing Out the Dead. There, yeah. there was sort of an, one that didn't really fly it under the radar. It did not get good but, reviews no. uh, when it came out. But then neither did New York, New York, and all of these films are worth revisiting now because people had expectations of Scorsese, and if he wasn't delivering what they thought, they thought it was a bad movie. But if you look at them for their own qualities, you're going to find something special there. I love it. In the write-up for the retrospective, there's a lot of talk about his team, and that team has shifted and changed over the years, but the cinematographers, his editor, Thelma Schoonmaker, uh, Robbie Robertson, Howard Shore, uh, just a huge part of this body of work. He could, we wouldn't be talking about this. Yeah, I mean, team. look, uh, he's a great filmmaker, but great filmmakers depend on great artists and craftspeople to help them tell their stories. His relationship with uh, his editor, Thelma Schoonmaker, is really one of the legendary ones in movies. It's lasted over 50 years, I think, by now, or for a long, long time. Um, and same with some of his composers, his cinematographers, uh, production designers, costume designers. You know, these are people that he can, he has a shorthand with after a while. And so he can get his vision up on the screen through their talent. Uh, and that's really something remarkable to see. I, every well. time I see that, watch the editing, I always just think of her remarkable work. I mean, it's just. Yeah, there's, I mean, there's just this gorgeous kind of energy and fluency to his totally. filmmaking, the yeah. way his camera moves. And that's consistent across different cinematographers. Uh, and and the way the films are cut, they have a real rhythm to them. Interestingly, in The Irishman, it's a similar story to some of his other gangster movies in terms of it's about guys kind of being drawn into a world of crime and seeing the consequences. But the pacing, the rhythm is different because he's telling a different story. This is a moral drama now about what happens at the end of a career of crime as opposed to simply being caught up in the euphoria of that criminal underworld. And so the pacing is different and the way he shoots the movie is different. And in a way that the way the the actors perform is a little bit different as well. So we're seeing a, a development there in the type of... Uh, There's a real maturity yeah. to the Irishman. I mean, he's always been a mature filmmaker, but I think this movie reflects where he is and who he is now. And he's a man looking back on his life and, uh, and you know, we don't have to have murdered people to, to have regret in our life. And I think you see that in The Irishman. And if you trace his work from the early films up to this movie, you really see the arc of somebody who's been thoughtful about his actions all the way along. I watched The Irishman last week, uh, Joe Pesci narrating as we watch Bob De Niro, you know, out with a gun and out there to do a hit or whatever it is. I love it. And it's wonderful. And there was a certain melancholy just taking it all in, thinking, yeah. this is it. This is the last ride. Yeah, it really is. I yeah. mean, I'm looking forward to, as people can kind of bounce back and forth, you know, and watch the brand new film and where Scorsese is now as a 76-year-old director and where he was in his early days. You know, his, his very first film uh, with uh, Robert De Niro, for instance, uh, if you look at a movie like Mean Streets, you look at some of the ones he did in his mid-career, there's a different energy to them and a different consideration of what it means to be a man. Sure. And a New Yorker. And I like the arc of that. Like any great artist, you want to see how they change and evolve over time. And Scorsese has left the record of his films to give us that. And I just encourage people to come and see as much as you can on the big screen. You can watch these movies other places, but there's really nothing. A movie like Raging Bull is a different experience. It's in a not movie meant theater. for a plane. It is not. Or your <laughs> tablet, believe me. <laughs> uh, Tiff.net, Cameron Bailey, he is the co-head of Tiff and the programmer of Scorsese, a retrospective. Thank you, Cameron. My pleasure. Always, Thank you. Always great to see you. That was a lot of fun. Three different conversations with Cameron Bailey, artistic director and co-head of the Toronto International Film Festival. The film business 
certainly changing and uh, Cameron has a lot to think about going forward and he's got a great attitude about the future of cinema, I think. TIFF.net to learn more about the festival, Lightbox, all the different programming, Cinematech, a wonderful resource for you. Thank you once again to our sponsors today, Crow's Theatre and Red Eye Media. And thank you to you. Thank you for checking out Remix. You can get in touch. We're on Facebook. Twitter is at Art at the End. My Instagram handle is at Wigdad. We're back on Monday here on Art at the End of the World with a very special guest and perfect for Oscar season. Canadian super producer, a legendary filmmaker behind so many films, so many award winners, Robert Lantos will be my guest. Don't forget, you can hear my program, The Oasis, on the new Classical FM weekdays, 3 to 7 Eastern, 12 to 4 Pacific, at classicalfm.ca. You can watch the broadcast on YouTube. And, of course, on Classic FM Radio, Toronto at 96.3, Coburg at 103.1, and Collingwood at 102.9. We're back on Monday. We'll speak to you then, and for as long as we can. podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.